Hi, Sarah. Hi, Josh. Welcome back to episode 11 of Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. 11? I'm really impressed that we've gotten this far. I'm impressed by our listeners, especially our longtime 11-week listeners, who will know that we open with a roundup of the good, bad, and ugly in the week in labor. This week, I'm watching a story involving the International Union and one of the union locals that I used to work for, Unite Here, Local 634 in Philadelphia. As we've discussed on Belabored before, and as friend of the podcast Dan Denver has written, Philadelphia is one of the national flashpoints in the battle over school funding and over education reform. Philadelphia Mayor Michael Nutter came under some additional scrutiny recently when he was on Chris Hayes' show on MSNBC and passed up the chance to criticize and seriously go after Republican Governor Tom Corbett and instead was talking about the merits of charter schools. An escalation that has taken place this week is a hunger strike by Unite Here where parents, staff, and workers who are facing layoffs are on hunger strike against the tremendous cuts, and in particular, the elimination of hundreds of jobs of what used to be called noontime aides in the schools. These are workers who described their job to me when I worked for the union as a cross between daycare, guidance counseling, and school security. These are kids who are responsible for the safety and health and well-being of the schools, of the children in the schools, all of the time except for when they are in the physical classroom. And one of the things that's been interesting about this controversy is the centrality of safety in terms of the rhetoric. So Unite Here has made a point of talking about these workers as school safety staff. Hunger strikers, who include some of these workers, have said that they are concerned about what will happen to kids without these workers in the schools, that they won't be safe. And the governor's administration has responded by telling the press that there must be some kind of misunderstanding because the police are not being laid off, laid off, that the school police will still be on the job. And so this isn't really about safety. And so it's, it's interesting to me, both because of this question of who it is that provides safety and also because... Item, not the cops. Also because of what it suggests about the way that, as we saw, for example, in Wisconsin, when Scott Walker went after public sector bargaining, the way that safety workers are held up as in some way less politically vulnerable, less deserving of so-called shared sacrifice than other kinds of workers, including other workers who are taking care of kids in schools. What one thing do more of the safety workers have in common, Josh? They tend to be men, belabored listeners. This reminds me of belabored podcast episode. All of them. Where Sarah goes on a grumpy feminist rant. Anyway. Speaking of rants, <laughs> Sarah, what do you have that is good, bad, or ugly this week? I'm going to start with the ugly because, um, well, I'm in a great mood. 
I so think that's obvious. Many of you probably heard about a McDonald's worker or now ex-McDonald's worker in Dallas Township, Pennsylvania this week who filed a lawsuit on behalf of herself and a class of her former colleagues at this McDonald's because they were receiving their paychecks, not on a check, not through direct deposit, not even in an envelope stuffed with, you know, non-sequential bills, but on a prepaid debit card um, that came from J.P. Morgan Chase. And she also got, along with her card, she got instructions for how to activate it, and she got a list of fees. Some of those fees include $1.50 for ATM withdrawals, $5 for an over-the-counter cash withdrawal, a dollar for a balance inquiry, and $0.75 for each bill that she wanted to pay online with the card. She's making somewhere in the neighborhood of $7.45 an hour. So, as you can imagine, each dollar that gets shaved off with bank fees is a dollar that is really missed. Um, As she said to a Pennsylvania paper, I can't afford to even lose a few dollars per paycheck. I just think people should be paid fairly and not have to pay fees to get their wages. So these cards are actually increasingly common. I had written for Alternet about them being used to disperse unemployment benefits a year and a half ago. Some 41 states were using them to disperse unemployment benefits. Um, Some states, including Oregon, where I've written about SEIU Local 503, have fought these cards because, once again, when you're getting unemployment benefits, every dollar counts, and every dollar that disappears in fees is a dollar you can't spend on food or rent or, you know, taking care of your kids. So... Looking into these cards a little bit, um, I have a piece up this week at In These Times about it. Um, There's a bill in New York State Senate right now that would legalize these cards here in New York that would have some more restrictions on them than Pennsylvania seems to, although Pennsylvania does require that the workers be paid in cash or check, according to the law that this lawsuit cites saying that these she is not given the option to be paid in cash or check. She was not given any other option than this card full of fees. So we will, I'm sure, have more on this in the future on Belabored. But the last thing that it's interesting to note, we've talked a lot about banks around here. We've talked a lot about the impact of the financial sector on the the rest of the economy. And it's always interesting to see new and exciting and innovative ways for banks to skim off the top here. They're touting these as an alternative to payday lending or the check cashing industry, which are usually the ways that people who don't have access to traditional banking get their paychecks cashed. But it doesn't seem to me a whole lot better to be paying a couple of bucks to the check casher or to pay a couple of bucks to J.P. Morgan Chase. You can call this the innovative bosses hour. So, speaking of the New York State Senate, a piece of good news for labor this month was the passage in both houses of New York's legislature of legislation to change the way that child models are regulated to move them into the jurisdiction of the Department of Labor rather than the Department of Education. This is legislation that was pushed by the Model Alliance. It's what I call an alt-labor group, one of the wide range of labor organizations in the United States that have sprung up to organize and mobilize workers who are not in collective bargaining and in many cases, like this one, not eligible for collective bargaining. So fashion models generally are considered independent contractors, so they're cast totally beyond the reach of these creaky, craven collective bargaining laws that we have in the United States. And one of the aspects of 
the alt-labor campaigns that we've been seeing increasingly in recent years is, along with tactics like consumer pressure, media pressure, going on strike, filing lawsuits, is going to the law and workers mobilizing to change the laws to be more favorable. And we've talked in the past on this podcast about the limits to that approach, but this is a early and concrete victory for the Model Alliance, a group that I plan to be writing more about. And it addresses issues that the leader of the group and founder, Sarah Ziff, identified with the even as limited as the governmental support for child workers who are covered under the Department of Labor in New York are, being covered under the Department of Education has been worse for these child models. It's meant, for example, that they don't have the guaranteed protections in terms of the presence of tutor tutors and chaperones and certain financial rules that do apply under the Department of Labor. And so this is something that the group has been working on through petitioning and pressure for some time. And it's a victory that they appear to have notched. At least we have something good. So I'm going to take us across the ocean again to Greece, which has become the sort of depressing face of austerity. Um, as we call policies that institute all sorts of punishing cuts and layoffs and Lord knows what else to um, countries mostly in Europe that mostly had a decent social safety net before that. So the latest round of cuts in Greece is in public broadcasting, where the ERT, the nation's public broadcasting system, was um, abruptly cut off last week. The prime minister decided that this was a good place to institute some 2,000 and some odd layoffs. And this did not go over well. It did not go over well internationally, where people, some people, including people like us, think that a free and independent media is essential to the functioning of democracy. And citizen protest really blew up. Anna Likas Miller at Global Comment writes about what the workers did. She writes, As the government shut down cables and antennas across the country, one by one, sometimes with riot police literally snipping the radio transmitters, ERT technicians began rerouting the signals through alternate routes. When the internet was cut in the main broadcast room, other technicians began frantically installing a private ADSL line so they could live stream the program over the internet in an ad hoc web TV channel. By the morning, the European Broadcast Union had come to the support of the ERT and set up a satellite in its own channel on satellite television. The signal is shaky, but the broadcast continues. Two of the country's largest unions held a 24-hour general strike in support of these workers. The coalition government that rules Greece, um, the two other parties that hold this tenuous coalition together, were very angry about this, and the coalition was actually brought to the brink of breakup, although now it looks like the ruling party has made some concessions and that will hold. There will not be snap elections over the public media. And a court has ordered ERT back on the air for now, although it has also ruled that it will be legal to replace the system with a smaller and possibly privatized broadcaster. As I mentioned, I'm, well, you know I'm a journalist that this hits home for me, for all of us, because once again, we believe that getting information to the people is vital to the functioning of democracy, and the unilateral shutdown was taken by a lot of people, a sign that democracy is not at all alive and well in Greece. On that cheery note. On that cheery note, we're going to have much more fun in just a minute because we are going to bring you one of 
The author of one of my favorite books that I've read in the last couple of months, Penny Lewis is an assistant professor of labor studies at the Murphy Institute at the City University of New York, and she's written a book called Hard Hats, Hippies, and Hawks, The Vietnam Anti-War Movement in Myth and Memory, and she talks about the issue of class in the Vietnam anti-war movement, and we will have some questions for her about all of that. I got bills galore, I need my bread up. Am I the only person in this room that's fed up? No. Obama, man, I'm trying to get paid, but can we please get a raise on minimum wage? So, Penny, I notice in the book you repeatedly reference Occupy Wall Street and the way the perceptions of the, the movement in the 60s have shaped perceptions of other movements and the way mm-hmm. they're, they're happening now. And you point out that the people, mostly the middle-class white men who got to tell the story of the 60s movement, really shaped our collective memory of who that movement was. I see that happening all over again, sort of with Occupy. What lessons does your book have for those of us who want to change that pattern? Hmm. Um, it's funny that you bring that up because when we issued our Occupy report mm-hmm. that I, I wrote with my colleagues Ruth Milkman and Stephanie Luce, the media's apprehension of our report immediately seized on one part of the demographics that we reported, um, which was that the Occupy protesters were disproportionately white and highly educated. And then they extrapolated from our data kind of beyond where our data was, uh, also affluent. So I agree that this story of the Vietnam era that I try to tell in my book is reproduced in the way that Occupy is being understood right now. As far as lessons for that go, I mean, there are a few things. One, the movements of the 1960s did not have enough storytellers that came out of the other streams that I detail in my book. Um, And so I do think that one of the advantages that we have today are the really amazing proliferation of people who are participating in the movement, who are letting the kind of diversity of the Occupy movement be represented in the public sphere because of the, you know, the ways in which people are writing about it in blogs and reporting about it in lots of other ways. I would also say, though, that in the 1960s, the movements, the organized anti-war movement opened itself up to some degree to charges of elitism, charges of disconnect from the broader movement streams that it was really operating as a part of. And I'd recommend to activists today that that the work that they're doing in the movement is both speaking to a broader audience, but is aware of the ways in which every movement group needs to root itself in a you know, real dynamic exchange with the communities and with the issues that it's working within. And I personally, the groups that I see in Occupy, I see them doing that. I mean, the groups that I look at are are doing that work. But I know during the occupation itself, there were individuals who argued against foregrounding issues of race or argued against thinking through the differences between what it mean, meant to experience precarity versus what it meant to experience lifelong, you know, kind of working class dislocation and lack of opportunity. Mm-hmm. Feeling like we're all the 99%. If we, d- if we dwell on our differences, we're going to somehow, you know, the movement will be hijacked and we want to be united. And I think one of the powers of today's movement is that it is united in many respects, but you don't want that unity to be paper thin. And I feel it's, you know, the movement activists themselves need to 
to, to realize the depth of unity as opposed to just papering over differences. So government surveillance is in the news recently? <laughs> you might have heard. <laughs> we remember that the anti-war movement and other left movements of the time were heavily surveilled by the government, directly messed with in ways that were not transparent, not known often at the time by the government. How did that impact the ability of these movements to reach out to a broader base and to build power? In the latter part of the Vietnam anti-war movement, specifically um, under the Nixon administration, state repression intensified dramatically. Um, I think that Fred Halstead, who is the, the presidential candidate for the Socialist Workers' Party, described the Nixon kind of repressive techniques and apparatus as just falling on them like a blanket. You know, there was this sense that they were being watched everywhere. And, you know, there were agent provocateurs assigned to different groups. There were, you know, all kinds of surveillance. There was direct assault. One of the GI coffee houses was bombed. You know, we know about the murders of people like Fred Hampton and other activists at the time. So I would say that you know, repression raised the stakes of the movement um, and of participation in the movement for a lot of people who might otherwise have joined it. And it also derailed a lot of the actions of the movements. I think for the a lot of the activists themselves, they also saw this as, you know, they needed to kind of meet fire with fire. And it, it intensified a violent rhetoric, but also a actual violent, you know, uh, actions and tactics. Yeah. <laughs> um, so weathermen being, you know, one example of that. So it had all of those effects. But I would say one other thing that I thought was very interesting that I read about um, in someone else's history of the Vietnam veterans against the war, uh, there was a police officer assigned to some of the organizing that was taking place within the anti-war movement. And he was in the same office as the Vietnam veterans against the war, and while he was in that office, he started working with the VVAW members on their work. And I think it's an amazing story because at the same time that he was spying on the movement, he was, he was attracted to and, and really impressed by what the VVAW people were doing. He was a veteran himself. He thought that they were right about what they were doing with the war. And the, the VVAW activists, looking back on the time, said, you know, he could have really fucked us up. He could have really, you know, messed up what we were doing. And he didn't um, because he had created that kind of solidarity. So that's one thing I would say that's interesting about it, when you have yeah. a kind of class, a strong kind of class perspective in a movement, that it might actually disrupt the capacity of the government to effectively sabotage your work because, you, you know, you might convert some of the spies. <laughs> that's really interesting. I hadn't thought about that in terms of the class perspective. Um, but so throughout the book, you do a really good job of breaking down the way that the working class is conceived in this country. So that we sort of assume this white male working class that works in goods producing, as I think you called it. And you know that that was not really the case in the 60s and 70s. It's, and it's even less so now. Can you talk some about the problems with that myth, both the problems it caused with the anti-war movement and the problems that it still causes for our organizing now? Oh, sure. I mean, you know, during the 1960s, I think there were good reasons why white male goods producing workers were the kind of primary working class identity from within and without. Good reasons in that they were the group that had 
created the unions that had had government legislation allow for unions to be passed in the fields that, you know, that they worked in, which were, you know, manufacturing and and other industries and construction and, and things like that. And they were a large section of the American working class. Um, So because of their social action from the 1930s, because they were organized, because they were visible, they became this kind of stand-in for the working class. The fact that, you know, the new working class was arising at exactly the same moment, you know, that black and and Puerto Rican um, and Chicano workers were also, you know, joining the workforce or had joined the workforce, but, you know, were, were organizing themselves, were, were mobilizing themselves, the fact that women were entering the workforce, that service jobs and government jobs were becoming kind of dominant places, all of that gets eclipsed when your focus remains on this kind of traditional group. And so when you're focusing only on this white male goods producing working class, then First of all, you miss the social movement activism that comes out of these other streams. And, you know, the the Black Power movement, the Civil Rights Movement, the various nationalist movements at the time all took within them anti-war stands. And they were also organizing with class experience, you know, at the core of their projects, even if they didn't necessarily self-identify as, you know, this is a working class movement, although actually frequently they did. The identities that that we look at are the racial identities and ethnic identities, and it, we lose the, the class complexity to those movements, I would say. And then also to the anti-war movement, which is what I focus on. As far as today goes, there's been a real shift, which I think is a really positive shift in the U.S. labor movement in particular. You know, the labor movement of the 1960s, the leadership of the labor movement did not represent its own members effectively in terms of its political orientation, specifically, you know, and especially around the question of the war, which is what I focus on. But it also was highly limited in who it represented. And of course, that continues to be the case. In fact, it's even more so the case today because so few people are actually organized. But the working class that is organized today is a much more diverse working class. And the unions reflect the public sector, service sector, and private sector workers that are a part of the movement. And so you still see kind of narrow representations of the class that come out of the labor movement. And I would say that the building trades workers um, and construction trades workers, you, you still see a kind of narrow perception. But more broadly, I've, I think it's very positive that the AFL-CIO and the Change to Win coalitions are taking up immigration reform, you know, defend affirmative action, are, are, you know, take a lot of positions that are more class-wide positions. So the challenge today, I think, is less from the perspective of the labor movement about the narrowness of, of the way that, that uh, race and class get kind of assigned to one group of workers, but rather the, the narrowness of the actual base of organized workers yeah. and the lack of power we have to really define any kind of class-wide agenda. Yeah. We will have you back next week to explain how we solve that problem. <laughs> but we wanted to talk also about I mean, your, your book tackles this myth of the conservative white working class, the myth that launched a thousand op-ed columns. In Thomas Frank books. The myth of the white working class as uniformly conservative, why do we have that myth? What What is incorrect about it? And is there some difference in the myth circa 1970 and the myth today? Mm-hmm. 
Um, these are all great questions. So first, throughout the book, I try to say that there is kind of half myth and half truth to a lot of the ways in which we, you know, remember this more recent past. The white working class during the 19, late 1960s and early 1970s, I found through looking at the anti-war movement, was moving in divergent political directions. And in this, I'm not alone in, in, in coming to this. So there were workers who were radicalizing towards the left and who were you know, taking over their unions from in rank and file upsurges and who were joining the anti-war movement and joining the other social movements or who were disaffected by, you know, the politics as usual and did not join anything like a silent majority, but also didn't necessarily join movements. There were also workers moving towards the right. And some of those workers, you know, famously assaulted anti-war protesters in May 1970, um, you know, at Wall Street in New York City. Well, did not happen during that era. Um, a few things didn't happen. First of all, as I spoke about, the, the labor movement did not effectively capture these divergent directions. But neither did, you know, political elites in any meaningful way. And specifically where I emphasize a different history than I would say Thomas Frank does, you know, the Democratic Party substantially failed continually to foreground many issues of concern to workers in this country. And that was increasingly the case, you know, in the era that I look at and became even more so the case, you know, going into the 1970s when neoliberalism as a strategy becomes the kind of dominant response by politicians and corporations to a crisis in profitability that became more and more apparent over the course of the 1970s. So workers were, in, to my mind, not effectively represented, but also, you know, I don't want to, I don't like the kind of victim way that this comes out, but abandoned by the political institutions that one would normally think to represent them. So this issue of social conservatism, right, and, and the fact that, that white workers do begin to vote in socially conservative patterns to the extent that they are voting at all. And one thing I would underscore is that for the most part, the reaction was to leave the political process and to, yeah. to be just wholly disengaged. Most workers today don't vote. That being said, the social conservatism became one of the places where workers maybe could find some kind of connection to what was happening with political elites. Like if they don't see a connection to the economic programs, if you're abandoned on a whole bunch of other levels, then, well, at least I'll vote for the person who lets me, you know, keep my gun, or at least I, you know, will vote for the person who, you know, doesn't espouse things that challenge me in ways that make me uncomfortable, you know? And so I guess I would see that the myth of social conservatism, the problem with it is that it essentializes this conservatism as if it is something that is inherently of importance that propels people into social action, whereas I would say that it's something that is more defensive, defeatist, conjunctural. It's, it's interactive with an abandonment that workers have experienced across a whole range of issues that they would normally perhaps be more engaged in. So the stress is, in a sense, on the wrong syllable. You know, <laughs> like you, you know you're, we're, we're looking in the wrong place, and where we should look is, is in these other, these other institutional failures. Yeah. So related to that, and, and you mentioned just a few minutes ago the conservatism of the major labor leaders, or a lot of the major labor leaders around the Vietnam War. 
Can you talk some about that? And also always specifically interested in the influence of the sort of red scare politics and the purging of the you know radical left from the labor movement and how that influenced how labor responded to the Vietnam War. Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, the the I, I don't actually think that I emphasize this enough in my book. Um, Sequel. <laughs> book on would, the Red Scare. I would also say there are a lot of fantastic histories out there that do tell the story of the effects of anti-communism within the labor movement. But I, I, I don't think you can emphasize it enough. I mean, you know, what happened in the late 1940s and throughout the 1950s where the political spectrum that was allowed within the labor movement was, you know, diminished dramatically uh, through the efforts of anti-communist leaders, first and primarily within the AFL and George Meany being indicative of that, but through the socialist and anti-communist leaders like Walter Ruther and, and the CIO leaders who allowed, not just allowed for, who encouraged anti-communism in their own ranks and who signed you know, the, the loyalty pledges and purged the communists from their own unions. That coupled with a transformation within the labor unions themselves towards more expert staffs, towards more bureaucracy, towards a kind of politics being something that was handled at the top of the union as opposed to something that is dealt with within. I mean, it, I say coupled with, you know, that helped produce a culture inside of unions where politics wasn't talked about, where politics wasn't something that people dealt with day to day on the shop floor through competitive slates for election, you know, the, the kinds of roiling CIO style that typified, you know, at least half the labor labor movement prior to the Red Scare. Bureaucratization plus a, a declining discussion of politics meant that, you know, whatever the leader said just stood in for what everybody else thought. And members were not asked to contribute to the discussion of what, you know, the, the political direction of their unions, nor were they expected to engage that at, at any level. So I think this had profound effects because you have an anti-communist leadership that is, you know, more supportive of war in Vietnam than even, you know, President Johnson. And they are, are putting labor's kind of reputation and standpoint, you know, on the line all the time through the you know, from 1965 through uh, the end of the 1960s. And this gets, this is far ahead of what the workers themselves thought about uh, the war. You know, the, the organized working class was divided on the question of Vietnam prior to 1968 and beginning in 1968, more unionized workers than not opposed the war. But you would have no glimmer of that, you know, if you're just looking at the, at the leadership. So... As we close, you were talking about some of the progressive trends in terms of convergence between left liberal organizations and unions on issues like immigration reform, immigration, an issue where seemingly every couple weeks another mainstream media outlet writes a story that's like, oh my God, the unions actually support immigration reform. When did this happen? But how do you see the state of that relationship now and in particular in the places where there are fractures, like around the Keystone XL? Are there differences between the conflicts we see now and the conflicts we saw a few decades ago? And are there lessons to be learned from what happened in that relationship in the Vietnam era? I think that there are lessons, and I guess that I wouldn't necessarily limit 
our thoughts about that to just the Vietnam era and today, you know, I think that there are real constraints around the ways in which U.S. unions imagine their kind of political roles. And certainly by the time of the Vietnam War, a business union perspective that privileges looking out for one's own members, that privileges growth, that privileges jobs, you know, that that works very closely with corporations and capital to kind of maintain the health of the economy. That, you know, was a dominant expression of trade union politics by the Vietnam era. And it really remains so today, even though there are you know, some challenges to that ideologically. I don't think that substantially there are that many challenges to that. And the Keystone Pipeline, you know, resolution from the AFL-CIO, I think, really typifies that. You know, here's a moment where the union should be on record opposing climate change and also opposing anything that is going to, that is going to worsen that condition. And there is, you know, universal acceptance among environmentalists that that the Keystone Pipeline and that, you know, developing the Qatar stands and everything that that stands for is is going to be horrific for the vast majority of people over the long haul. And instead, the AFL-CIO is responding to a kind of narrow base of, well, we need those jobs and therefore we are not going to stand in the way of that kind of development. So that was a problem 40 years ago. That's a problem today. And I feel like, you know, until the unions and until members of the unions and until the allies that unions are working with, you know, continue to push the labor movement to take class-wide concerns as centrally as they do more narrow and sectoral concerns, we are going to be, you know, telling the history 20 years from now about the lost opportunities of the labor movement again, you know? How you go fight capitalism being quiet? How you go fight racism being shy? How you go fight the man when you ain't got no plan? How you go live your life when your ass won't fight? The book is Hard Hats, Hippies, and Hawks, The Vietnam Anti-War Movement as Myth and Memory by Penny Lewis. Check it out. We will link to it on the site along with other articles we discussed like Annalikas Miller on Greece, Ned Reznikoff breaking the story of the Philly hunger strike, and long-time 11-week listeners. 11 weeks. 11-week listeners will know this is the portion of the podcast that we call ARG. I wish I had written that. So this week, Sarah, if you were going to a wedding and you didn't have any present to give other than the most intense form of jealousy possible, what would that intense jealousy be jealousy of? Am I going to give jealousy as a wedding present? Okay, anyway. Um, so this week, I um, some of you may have seen a video that was passed around a lot of the Miss USA pageant and uh, Miss Utah being asked a question about the gender wage gap. And Miss Utah did not amazingly, give us a two-minute answer about um, that called out pervasive sexism in the workforce and our increasing um, economic inequality, the lack of union protections for most private sector workers, and all of capital's patriarchy. But she did not. Um, instead, she gave a, you know, sort of circumspect answer, and she was roundly mocked for it. So um, our friend Bryce Covert at Think Progress wrote a piece called What Those Mocking Miss Utah Miss About the Gender Wage Gap, um, which is a subject that Bryce has written a lot of pieces that I arg wish I'd written over the last couple of years. So, as she notes, 
Most of the people who are mocking Miss Utah for not having a solution to the gender wage gap also do not have a solution to the gender wage gap. It's sort of ironic that our country shows absolutely no hurry to actually fix the gender wage gap, but we expect beauty pageant contestants to have the answer. Um, we create beauty pageants to look at pretty women, and then we throw in one random question that could be on any subject, and we expect these women to have a more thoughtful answer than most of our actual elected officials on the subject. As Derek Thompson from The Atlantic noted on Twitter, Ms. Utah's inequality answer wasn't cogent, but blah blah, more education, blah blah, more jobs is defensible policy. Education, as Bryce points out in this piece, is not the answer to this problem. We'll need actual policy solutions aimed at actually fixing this specific issue. Um, Policies like family leave for men as well as women, paid sick time, and as I've mentioned on this show before, maybe a shorter workday for everyone would help even out the burden of family care, change our perception of whose work care work actually is, and maybe make some changes in the system that has us parading around women in bikinis and then mocking them for not being labor policy experts. This week, I wish I had written an article by Tim Wu in The New Republic. It's called The Right to Evade Regulation, How Corporations Hijack the First Amendment. And though it's not mentioned in the piece, it's particularly fitting in light of another recent lower court decision saying that the National Labor Relations Board could not require companies to post notices informing workers of their organizing rights because that would be so-called compelled speech, that it's not fair to these corporations to require them to post a notice sharing legal rights that they might not want their workers to have or want their workers to know that they have, that that is a violation of their First Amendment rights. So this makes Tim's piece particularly fitting. Tim was writing about the ways in which the doctrine of corporate speech and First Amendment protection for corporate speech has spread in recent decades, and shares examples, some of which I frankly found surprising. For example, a 2011 Supreme Court case in which the majority decided that a pharmacy selling patients information about the drugs they had purchased was a First Amendment protected activity that could not be restricted by the government. So he looks at the development of this jurisprudence, the interesting bedfellows, the folks who think of themselves as liberals, who have defended the First Amendment rights of oppressed minorities, who are individuals who are speaking, and who believe that it is of a piece with that to defend the rights of corporations to, for example, not post warnings on cigarette packages that might make people not want to buy the cigarettes. And he argues that, in fact, we need not, if we care about the First Amendment, be against preventing companies from selling our private information to each other. It's an excellent piece in The New Republic, and it is one of the things that filled me with jealousy over the past week. That brings us to the end of Oh My Goodness Belabored episode 11. 11. Thanks, as always, to our wonderful producer, Natasha Lewis, to Descent Magazine for hosting us, to Sarah Leonard for making it all happen, and to you for showing up and listening. If you have questions about explainers that you would like, you can tweet them at us at hashtag belabored. And Josh, what do we have coming up next week for our loyal 12-week listeners? If you stick with us for week 12, you will get our exclusive interview with Rich Yesselson about his lightning rod article, Fortress Unionism, in The Democratic Strategist. 
you still have time to check it out and join us for the conversation. This life is hard, so hard I must go. Eight twenty five, hell no, we can't go. Society has enslaved me and it's crazy, cause they.